G'day everyone. Welcome to the Leadership Sensei Radio. This is a small business podcast where we get to explore all the many facets of small business and also leadership and what it means to be an owner and a business leader in today's busy, busy life. I'm your host, Brett Morrison, and this week I'm pretty excited to bring to you a special guest. Now, I promised a couple of months ago to bring on a senior military leader and I've been working pretty hard to make that happen and we finally aligned all of the calendars and this week we have a good friend of mine and one of my military brothers so I'm pretty keen to share his story with you this week. Our guest this week is Wing Commander Pete McConville. He's a 30-year veteran of the Air Force in Australia. Now for those listeners of mine who are over in the United States, a Wing Commander is the equivalent of a half colonel. For those listeners in the UK and New Zealand, I know you understand what that all means because you also play cricket. And while we're on the subject of cricket, let's not mention the ball tampering fiasco because that was just plain embarrassing. So anyway, let's not muck around. I know you'll enjoy the story. There's a lot of embedded messages and and insights in what in Pete's story as he shares his journey over 30 years of coming into leadership as a, as a, a young man and and going through his career, but also how that's shifted when he's had to move industries and out of the military and come back in again and, and what that has meant for him. Let's not muck around anymore. Let's bring him on. Welcome everybody to the Leadership Sensei Radio. With me tonight I've got a really special guest. Uh, actually, I mentioned a couple of, well, probably about a month ago about bringing a senior military uh, leader onto the show and tonight we've been able to pull that off. So welcome Pete. Thank you, Brett. So. With me here tonight is Pete McConville, Wing Commander Pete McConville from the Air Force, over 30 years in the Air Force, I believe. Pretty, yes, would be over 30 years, especially if you added them both together. Yeah, absolutely. So I've known Pete for many years, great operator, and a lot of experience in the leadership space. So uh, we'll start off, Pete, please, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, uh, joined the Air Force straight out of school. Um, so finished high school like lots of people in the late 80s, yep. mid 80s. Uh, couldn't afford to stay at home and go to university. So the Air Force came along and offered me an exciting opportunity to get paid and go to uni, which I took. So four years at RMIT, graduated, asked the Air Force to take me anywhere but Richmond or... um, Which is just west of Sydney for my overseas listeners. Yeah, anywhere but Richmond, just outside Sydney, and anything except a big aircraft depot. So what they did was they sent me to the big aircraft depot just outside Sydney. Uh, that, that's not unusual, is it? Like no. that, that's usually how it goes. Where do you not want to go? Let's send you there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the first job I had there, I was no leadership. I was on my own. Oh, so wow. typical, sort of typical for that first time you've just got out of university because you haven't, there's, there's a lot of like leadership courses you've got to do. You've yeah, got to do your you do. basic um, officer training and some engineering, basic engineering courses for Air Force. Yep. And so they don't really want to give you a responsible job because you're kind of in and out of the workforce for the first year. So the first year I'm locked in this little organization just doing my first ever real design job in the Air Force, sitting down and actually doing maths and coming up with things. Unfortunately, was that your last? It was also my last. Yeah, I thought it might have been. (laughs) (laughs) It was the last time I actually did hardcore blank sheet of paper, do the maths, come up with an answer. So during that time, 
that's when I really did my first leadership training. Yeah. There was odds and sods, little bits and pieces as I went through the degree, but that's largely, really that was focused on just the technical side. Yeah. So the first thing is um, basic officer training. Yeah. So that for me, I think that was 16 weeks, locked away, doing fairly ordinary leadership training that you would see if you watch Officer and a Gentleman and all yeah. those other shows. Yeah, lots of yelling and screaming, lots of going out in the bush, lots of, you know... Marching. Marching up and down the Cleaning square. shoes. Yeah. yeah, cleaning shoes, getting in trouble for not realising that you're not supposed to have rubbish in a rubbish bin. Yeah. All of that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a bizarre concept, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. So that, that was 16 weeks, and that was pretty much in the first year. And, I, and some basic engineering courses, which are about how engineering was done in the Air Force. So yeah. these are the kinds of forms you need to fill out. This is how the okay. system works. Um, and in that, there was also some more leadership training. So some ideas about, as an engineer specifically, um, you are likely to have these kinds of people working for you. you are like, they are likely yeah. to have this sort of experience. And that was actually really important because you've got to remember, you go to university and you come out as a fairly fresh-faced, say... I think I was 21 when I finished, okay. uh, turned 22 a couple of weeks Still after young, I graduated. Impressionable. And in my, if I had taken over the, my first flight at that stage, I would have had three warrant officers working for me, all of whom were older than and remarkably similar to my father. <laughs> and that would have been really weird. Yeah. So. The idea that in that first year, I was actually sort of locked away in a bit of a design office, finding my way around and making horrendous mistakes, yeah. kind of on my own, was, was kind of nice. Yeah, um, yeah. Then, so did that first year, got some training under my background, and then got my first ever job. So now I'm a fresh-faced 22-year-old, yep. clearly perfectly trained and ready to go, with uh, 120 people working for me, five different sections, three warrant officers, well, wow. all that sort of so thing. So for those not familiar with military ranks, a warrant officer was a senior rank that an enlisted, yeah. enlisted man yeah. or enlisted person can get. Yeah, so the, senior, so, the, the warrant officer, it, to put it in, in another way, what you're dealing with is a bunch of people who, they are at the pinnacle of their career. Yep. Um, they have worked sometimes for 20 and 30 years to get to this point and we're yeah. immensely proud of it yeah. and then this 22 year old turns up and starts telling them what to do yeah um that's a challenge we actually trained trained i can't comment too much on how that works now because it was 30 years ago yeah. since i did it <laughs> but we actually trained people reasonably well for that we yeah. prepared them for this and at the same time, don't forget the warrant officers had been receiving junior yeah. officers for a long time, so they were kind of ready for what was going to happen. Yeah. If you were good, you kind of worked out a level of detente with your warrant <laughs> officers. Um, if it went really badly, you ended up headbutting them. Yeah. I was very fortunate. I had yeah. two very good warrant officers yeah. um, who were both, both of whom I think kind of saw it as their job to mould the, the junior engineers yeah. who were going to move forward. Yes. So yeah. John Smith and John Cole actually had an enormous... That I remember their names after all yeah. these years is probably an indicator. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they were very good at shaping me about what it takes to move, get people to do what you want yeah. them to do, which has by and large served me pretty well. I think in some ways the way I relate to people 
hasn't changed much since then. Yeah. So then you ended up with those two guys that you deal with, um, and it's a relatively straightforward job. You yeah. come in in the morning, you tell them, you just keep everything sort of humming along. They have the day-to-day job of making sure that all the people below you are turning up for work, doing what they're supposed yep. to do, and stuff's being done. Your job is mostly to manage upwards, really, yeah. um, and to sort of figure out what the problems of your section are, to characterise them well, get the organisation doing what your section needs, yep. and then to communicate that back down when something's coming up. So if the head shed wants something, then to press it down through your warrant officers um, into the into the lower levels. Yeah. It'd be, really, when you stop to think of it, it's pretty rare that you would walk out as a junior officer and say, Corporal, do this. Yeah, um, it would be. That's pretty unusual. Unless it's, Corporal, can you go remind me of something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's coming up to 12 o'clock and it's time yeah. to head down to the mess. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most of the day-to-day stuff was handled by the warrant officers. Yeah. So, okay, that's your first ever job. That breaks you in. That gets you ready to be an engineer in a whole bunch of areas. I then moved, as is usual, do your first job managing people in some sort of maintenance environment. Then it goes back into a staff environment. Normally, the workforce... So for me, I went into a headquarters. My job was to um, assist projects that were preparing for... um, going into getting parliamentary approval to go spend a lot of money. Yeah. So I did a whole bunch of logistics analysis, which is not the point of this conversation. <laughs> At that, uh, in that position, I had two warrant officers again who worked okay. for me, but that was a very technical relationship. Yeah. So that at that point, the that was probably the first time where the, if you like, the balance of authority, that sounds wrong, but you yeah. know, that sort of balance of power genuinely changed. Because we're now beginning to talk about quite technical issues, doing yeah. a lot of doing a lot of quite uh, detailed analysis of problem spaces, which actually having an engineering degree and having that level of tertiary education probably prepares you for better yeah. than even thirty years of working as a okay. tradie. Yeah. So they would be very good. So really, the relationship became much more me telling them what I needed and making sure they did it. Okay. So me telling them, for me to do these calculations, I need you to go get this data. And then I was doing the I was doing the analysis. I was the one who had to solve the problem. I was the one setting the parameters. They were the ones doing exactly what I, yeah, I told them okay. to do. So it's at that flight lieutenant level where the um, the balance of power, junior officer really starts to become a true leader and yeah. rather than a collaborator or cooperator yeah. with his subordinates. So that was my first flight lieutenant job and then, as usual in defence, you do that for three years and I got posted. Um, and then I went to, one of, actually one of the projects I was working on was successful, government gave us a great bunch of money a real project office was formed, and for my sins, I became part of the project office. Uh, for the next three years, I had no subordinates. Uh, okay. I worked directly to the engineering manager of this project. Yeah. I joined the project when there was five people in it. Three years later, when I left, there was 65 people in it. That's a big shift. And yes, I had continued to work solely for myself pretty much <laughs> the whole time. Um, 
But that was a particularly interesting time because I had no subordinates, but at the same time I was in charge of a whole bunch of people. Yeah. So again, you learn something new about how to lead when you don't actually have authority. Yeah. So I was, in that instance, I was the requirements and systems engineering manager in a, of a project that, as I said, ended up with 65 people in it, 20 engineers, yeah. um, developing all the functional and test specifications for an aeroplane. Now, the way it was worked is you had an engineering manager that the whole team worked for, Beneath him, he had his technical specialists who were doing the day-to-day work of developing the specifications. I was a staff officer working directly to the, the um, engineering manager, but in that role, I set the criteria for how the work would be done. I set okay. the, the schedules for how things would be done, and it was my job to compile everything into one, right, yeah. or one structured piece of correspondence uh, information that could yeah. go to tenderers. So whilst none of the other engineers worked for me, I I lived and died by whether they succeeded or not. Yeah. Is Um, that something that you found, going back to your leadership training, that they prepared you for? No. I didn't think so. No. That's why I thought I'd throw that question in there because the dynamic shifts, because most of the leadership training I've seen is very face-to-face. Like you've got got your men over here and you've got to take them over the hill and... But when you get to the, the, the dynamics of getting people to do things for you, but you have no, you're not in their authority or their command chain. Yeah. Like you said, that that dynamic shifts completely. That's exactly right. And in fact, it's both. Tr- Sorry, I'm thinking about this, getting my words right here. One of the worst aspects that we ever talk about in military training organisations: the bullying and the harassment. Yeah. Thing, that was actually really good training for what I needed to do. <laughs> and what I mean there is. In that environment where you've got a couple of hundred guys who are all learning something and they're all, but you've got those social dynamics of who does well, who does poorly, who gets on well with the group, who can get what they want from the group. Learning how to get a course to do the kinds of things you want versus not the yeah. things you don't want. When you have no formal authority is actually, was a great training ground for how do you get people to do things for you when you can't tell them what to do? Yeah. How do you and and often that's because they like you, yeah. they respect you. You can make them laugh. You can take something off their you can take something off their mind when they're finding it hard. You can find a way to help someone when you don't have to, yeah. um, or when, quite frankly, you think you might get something for it later. Mm. Um, so it's, it was really more that general kind of having to live with a whole bunch of other people and find your way through yeah. was a better training for that kind of yeah. environment. You're exactly right. When you sit down and do leadership training, no one ever says there'll be a bunch of people that you have no authority over, but you want to get them to do something. Yeah. And the truth is most of the people we lead, we actually have no direct authority over. Yeah. So um, that was a really interesting time and, and that went really well. We, got the spec out, we bought the aeroplane. And then, as is usual, that was three years, promoted, posted, so now I became a squadron leader. And, God, you're making me go back in time now, was posted to Melbourne again. Okay. Um, So came back to Melbourne, came into this organization. Um, And as is typical for the Air Force, brand spanking new job, something I've never heard of before. Yeah. So I, 
out of my previous job of working with this um, project documentation, I got a reputation with someone else of being quite good at that kind of work. Yep. So I got recruited to come down to Melbourne, working then Director General Technical Airworthiness. Yep. Because they had a similar job. Okay. They had um, there was a whole bunch of old regulations, really a, a stack of books that we used to describe to people how to do engineering. Yep. And it was very narrative, sort of, and it was very based on the organisational structures we knew we had. The idea was to turn that into a set of regulations, objective okay. kind of requirements that any organisation, whether they were part of us or part of somewhere else, a contractor specifically, yep. could be measured against. Um, I had a team of five people doing that. Um, I was kind of, and I also had the job of just going out and playing on doing audits at the same time. Okay. The way I ran that job was, from a leadership perspective, I tried to think, what have I got to do? What resources have I got? Both internal resources and externals. Yeah. How do I think I'm going to get this done best? And frankly, I kind of made the choice, rightly or wrongly, that the best way of me doing this was to shrink my involvement in the audit side of it down to nothing but leadership yep. and then devote my intellectual horsepower not to running what was currently in place but purely to the um, uh, this regular regulation mm. development role. So I plucked one of my staff out who didn't particularly like travelling anyway and made him my red guy that I worked with and put a hard division in the team and said, you guys, you do all the audits. And I, I had to say to the most senior guy, I'm going to need you to run this. Um, I need you to run the audit schedule for these 22 organisations or so that we do. And I'm just going to have to be able to give you some fairly broad guidance. And I'm going to, you're going to have to come back and tell me how things are going. And you're going to have to not do that too often. And, but you're going to have to tell me as soon as there's a problem. So I, I've got warning. Yeah, so and there's yeah. a fine line, isn't it, between abdicating responsibility, yeah. but also having that leadership ability to step back and go, what's the best use of my leadership in this team and knowing where your skill sets lie, yeah. but also then being able to read your team well enough to go, actually, he's the best guy to do this. And that was probably the key thing. That worked, um, but not so much because of my great leadership in telling people what to do. The key thing I did in that case was choose the right guy. Yeah, I had three options because I had three subordinates that were the same level. Yeah. Um, I had to pick one guy who would be the same. They were all flight lieutenant equivalents. Yep. Um, so when I say equivalent, they were actually one army, one navy, one air force. <laughs> um, but they were all yeah. of the same rank. Yeah. Okay. And so I just picked the one that I thought was most likely. The probably the biggest issue there was not only picking the right guy, but then acting in a way that reinforced his position towards the other two. Yeah. So you don't want to make it obvious and go slapping people and say, no, 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 you know, he's in charge. <laughs> That's all right. Sorry. Um, you don't want to go slapping people and, and saying, because that in some ways that kind of diminishes their role. Yeah. If, if, if the person who's been given a leadership job is reliant upon the people above them to constantly and openly reinforce their role, paradoxically, that diminishes it. Yeah. 
So you've really just got to act in a way where, well, of course this person's in charge. Of yeah. course this is, well, why? So that became more about just, if someone would come to you for a problem, you'd simply say, well, what's, what's uh, Betsy's role on this? What's, yeah. what's Betsy think? You don't know? Go back and see him. Yeah. Um, and then you didn't jump up and down and say, Betsy's in charge, go see him. You just made it absolutely clear that if things didn't come through him, they didn't come. Yeah. Um, it took a little while, but within a, uh, probably within two or three months, yep. we got to the point where yeah, one flight, was, flight lieutenant was leading a lieutenant in the Navy and a captain in the Army, and I barely spoke to either of them. I okay. had created... Um, a rank structure where theoretically there was no rank structure. Yeah. And that worked beautifully. Uh, Betsy did his job. Yep. <laughs> I didn't get in trouble. And I was able to focus on what I needed to get done. And we got, at the same time as managing an audit schedule on 20-something organisations, we developed a whole new book that became you know, the regulations that Defence used for basically the next 20. 25-ish years. Yep. So how bad can it be? Can't be too, but too bad, can it? Uh, so did that. Um, then that was three years. Then back to Richmond, where because you love Richmond, because I loved Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I clearly made it plain to the Air Force that I loved Richmond by saying, "Please never send me there." Um, by this stage, I did want to go back there. Okay. I'd met my wife there. She okay. enjoys Sydney, so we're in Richmond. Yeah. Um, I went into headquarters ALG. Another interesting leadership challenge. Um, I was buried in a staff position, so theoretically, um, my role there was purely. I have. I was a squadron leader. I worked for a wing commander. I was her staff officer. She yep. needed stuff done. I would go do the research, write the paper, provide it yep. to her. I had one person who worked for me who did some kind of numpty sort stuff. of things, but yep. that was essentially it. Not much of a leadership role there. Until, um, again, it became one of this sort of leadership of peers arrangement. One of, over that period of time, things began uh, within headquarters ALG, so Airlift Group, was, if you like, the peak organisation that looked after five or six different flying squadrons. And in a number of those, in two of those flying squadrons in particular, maintenance had begun to fall off the rails. Wow. And Which is significant because airlift group, anything that moves in the air around Australia and overseas goes through airlift group, right? That's right. So busy, um, busy unit. Very, very busy. It's the vast majority of what they do is what we would call national tasking. So it is actual real life operational tasking. The amount of training runs that they they do is minuscule. They don't get time, do they? They don't. They're Um, operating on time. So if you can't, fly a mission, government isn't achieving something it wants to achieve. Yeah. So when uh, availability of these aeroplanes began to fall off, it became a matter of some urgency to get things back on track. Yeah. So my job evolved from being kind of this general staff officer to someone where we're just filling out your standard maintenance reports and keeping everything kind of ticking over to becoming a bit of a troubleshooter, gun for hire, problem solver, get these two squadrons back and running. That worked okay, um, but culminated in, I'm not sure if this is leadership command or just being professional, but culminated in me having to have some fairly 
serious talks with my boss, the one star that, that one star general that ran yep. the organization, that some of his key maintenance managers were simply not up to it. These are people who at a, were at my level. Okay. They are my peers. One of them was one of my friends. But you've got to say, sir, this guy's just not cutting it. You can't do it. Um, you are not going to achieve what you need to achieve while this guy's the senior. Um, that got two things happened. One, one of those guys was moved on to another job. And secondly, my boss, the one star, said, well, if you think you're so smart, congratulations, you're now it. So how did that go? <laughs> Is that when you go, oh, oh? Yeah, yeah, there was a bit of a tightening moment there. Yeah. But at the same time, it was also quite exciting because if you run back through my history, yeah. um, one of the things I should point out that at no time at, at, up until ha here had I ever actually worked in a real flying squadron. I'd worked in a depot repairing yeah. aeroplanes that came in and got repaired yeah. for like four months and then left. Completely different environment. Yeah. Uh, and I'd culture too. I'd worked in staff jobs and doing computing yeah. and all this sort of stuff, but I'd never actually sat there with in a hangar with 10 aircraft on the line, or in my case, six aircraft on the line, a tasking board and people screaming at you, we've got to get this done, we've got yeah. to get this done. So... Um, I was excited because, frankly, if it hadn't have come up this way, there was probably no way my background was ever <laughs> going to get me into that job. Okay. Um, That's interesting. Isn't so it, it was yeah. very strange. So here I was, I'm the other senior of a unit which was in trouble. No maintenance, no, sorry, uh, no availability. We're dropping tasks all the time to the point where some of the people that would task us so Army, Navy, Air Force units that kind of drive. In a sense, think of it, your customer base yeah. is turned on you. Yep. They've simply said, they've, they've stopped sending orders your way. Yeah. Um, they're finding alternative ways. They'd rather spend three days trucking stuff somewhere yeah. uh, than rely on the fact that your aeroplane may or may not turn up. So that was, in a sense, one of the first times I've, I really started to employ the traditional kind of leadership of a group of men to try and achieve a, a lofty goal that we talk, commonly think of in the yeah. military. So I formed an alliance with the executive officer of the, the organization. The way a flying squadron works for uh, you out there is yeah. there's basically the commanding officer sits at the top and then you can almost slice the squadron in two. And the commanding officer is a pilot? Commanding officer is always a pilot. Yep. Because they um, fly and they got to know what's going on in their combat space. That's the one. And then, as I said, beneath that, you can almost slice it in two. So you'll have the operational side, which is generally headed up by the XO, yep. um, the executive officer, and yep. they'll be all the pilots, yep. and in my case, a whole bunch of other air crew. Um, and then there's the technical side. And the supply people generally work for the technical side. So yeah. I'm the senior engineering officer in the squadron, report directly to the CO. Um, and all the technicians, all 130 of them or something, were yep. for me. Um, so both myself and the EXO were new to the squadron and we were charged with turning things around. And so we sat down and did a bit of a, a survey. What did we think the problems were? Were they things that we could control or were they mostly internal kind of learned helplessness issues? And the reality was, after sitting down and thinking about it, we thought 
look, there are some things we can't control. Yeah. We're, we're operating old aeroplanes, they break. That's just a reality. We're operating um, an unusual kind of aeroplane. Sometimes it can be hard to get parts. That's a reality. On the operations side, um, it's a big, complicated aeroplane. It was difficult to train people to fly it, so they were constantly bouncing off not having enough people, which was made worse by the fact that we weren't generating tasks for them to develop training. Yeah. So we got we were getting into this death spiral that squadrons can get into. So we took a we sat down together and said, "What's our strategy going to be?" And our strategy was we just say yes. We felt that we actually inherently, with one or two exceptions, we actually had the resources. Yeah. We actually had what we needed to succeed. The problem was people had been looking at the small problems that they'd had for so long that those problems had become the reason why you couldn't do anything. Yeah. And therefore, they're just sort of frozen in their tracks. Yep. And then once you get into that habit of accepting that you can't do something, it becomes really easy to say, I can't do something. Uh, that's true, yeah. And, and that, the culture shifts, doesn't it? That, be, that becomes the new, the new norm. Yes. Which is interesting. And then to move people out of that new norm, well, actually then becomes embedded norm. Yeah. You know, when I say normal, I'm talking about the, the, the normal state or the normal culture. And for a leader, that's probably the worst place to be. And so I know there's different roles you can come into into an organisation as a leader. And hearing that, it's, it's that classic turnaround yeah. scenario. And that's a different style of leadership to stabilising an organisation and then steadying the ship and helping them to improve and do incremental change. This is wholesale, we need to turn around to save it. Yeah, and in fact, what they'd had is a number of people coming in who were kind of the stabilizers, who were saying, okay, what we need to do first is get a, a solid grip of where we're at, of what we're going to do. And the downside was what was happening is every time they did that, they said, okay, let's, um, let's just hold, stop operations for a second. Let's just take stock of where we're at, which of course just reinforce the idea that you're not doing operations. Yeah. So you start by, you've got six aeroplanes, people expect you to have five serviceable. You're not quite getting there, so they say, okay, let's take stock of what we're doing and re-baseline. So during that time, five becomes, or four becomes three. Yeah. Then you, you keep doing that for a while, kind of struggling, you're not hitting your target, you take stock, you realize you're in trouble, so you slow everything down again, and suddenly three becomes two. And so your actions where you're trying to improve are actually driving you backwards. What did you get down to? One aeroplane every two days. Wow. Out of a fleet of six is what we're operating. That's not good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a very polite way of putting it. It got to the point, as I said, this was the 707. This is coming to, this is a very old aeroplane. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was, it was coming to the point where they were starting to have serious discussions about Maybe we, we just withdraw the airplane from service. Maybe well, we just bite that, the bullet and we say it's just not worth proceeding with. Yeah. And, and we're not, try not to be over dramatic. The aircraft was scheduled to be withdrawn from service in, withdrawals were going to start in three years anytime. Okay. So the drawdown was going to occur regardless. Yep. But this was about maybe we just bite the bullet, we shut the squadron down. A, three years earlier, and B, much faster. It was yep. scheduled for like a three or four year uh, slowdown. Drawdown, yeah. Drawdown. Um, maybe we draw down instead over um, yep. 
I think they were going to do a two-year drawdown, I would have become the last senior. Okay. So we didn't want that to happen, and it was important that that didn't happen because we remember we didn't have an, another airplane to replace it. So no. if that had have occurred, it was a big thing. The squadron shuts down. The Air Force loses its strategic transport capability and its only tanker capability. It, that's not something we no. want. So the decision became, let's go the whole other way. Throttle to the, throttle to the floor, just say yes. Um, we got tested immediately. You do, and it's funny how when you put something like that out, and this is probably a little bit fluffy, especially in a military environment, a little bit um, esoteric, but when you put something out to the universe, the universe will test you straight up. Yeah. Now you go, okay, I'm going to commit to going to the gym four days a week, and then all of a sudden you sleep in, or there's a, you know, a, a cold snap, yeah. or one of your kids gets sick, or you've had to work late the night before, and it's the same sort of deal yeah. in the workplace. Okay, let's commit, we're going to get five serviceable out of six. Well, in this case, it wasn't even about getting five serviceable out of six. This was slightly different. This was, if someone asks, we just say yes. Yep. So someone asked, and the someone asked was um, a bunch of 50 two, one, two, and three-star generals plus their spouses wanted to go on a six-week jaunt around Asia on one of our aeroplanes where we could not afford to drop a single mission. No pressure. No pressure at all. No. So um, we did everything we could. We found the best aeroplane we possibly could. Yep. Um, we filled it full of spares. Yep. Um, we picked, we, when we do one of these bigger trips, we would send a maintenance detachment, so we picked our best guys. Yep. And then I went on the <laughs> aeroplane. And the, nu- the number one reason I went was one, hey, it's a great trip around <laughs> Asia. And two, yes. um, one of the... You know, a, a, the senior engineering officer of the unit has special maintenance powers. Oh, yes. <laughs> you're you're yes. able to um, you're a, you're able to fix the aeroplane with a pen by making risk decisions about yeah. proceeding in certain circumstances where you might not otherwise need yeah. to do so. And so we did everything we could to make this a success, and it worked. Well done. Six weeks. Congratulations. Went really well. I can't take too much credit for it. The aeroplane just behaved beautifully. Funny, the more it gets used, the better they fly. Sometimes they fight you every step of the way. Yep. This one, uh, it was just beautiful. And it had a number of flow on effects. Remember, right, we took a whole bunch of one stars. These yep. were one stars who had been sort of told, don't bother relying on the 7 it can't help you. Then we took them around, gave them yep. a great place, wind them and dine them. Um, yep. And they spread and suddenly tasking started to come in. Um, and more tasking would come in because that was successful. And then we got to the point where after six months, people were comfortable yeah, giving back jobs. Track. It was, we got back to a normal. So we had, yeah. at this point, we still had six aeroplanes. We'd accepted that given where we were, probably four lines of tasking were the best we were going to get. Yeah. Um, because we simply were starting to run out of spares we could okay. not get around. Yeah. So you had one aircraft that was in deeper maintenance, you had another aircraft that we simply would not normally be able to fix because we did not have parts. Okay. You can't will yourself out of some mm-hmm. situations. Was so, that saying to become the, the cannibalised aircraft yeah. as well, which then once you start that spiral, it's a slippery yeah. slope, isn't it? So, so unfortunately, yeah, aircraft 627 became the Christmas tree. Yeah. Um, and so you can't get out of that. And you know you can 
believe that the universe yeah. will manifest a, a part, it's, it's but maybe not, not a JT3 turbo jet. <laughs> Yeah. So that's just not going to occur. Yeah. And so that was okay. We're, we're hitting for pretty reliably. And yeah. we, I was pretty comfortable with that. And then, um, and we did some big operations, ones I was really quite proud of. Yeah. Um, but then we were really tested again. Um, again, when, you, when you're really pushing things, sometimes the universe likes to see how far you'll push back. Yep. An aircraft was late out of deeper maintenance, but the other one had to go back in. So we're now down to, I've only got, th- and there's the other Christmas tree, tree one. So I've really only got three airplanes to play with. And there's a big earthquake over in Pakistan and um, we needed to get a whole bunch of hospital stuff from Australia over to this place up in yeah. Pakistan. Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. And, and this really is important. This isn't yeah. just moving things around for an exercise. This is if you don't move the hospital, then the hospital isn't established and all of those patients that were hoping to go to a hospital die. Yeah. Um, so you really do want to do this. And this is now international relations as well. And it's international yeah. relations and a whole bunch of things. And so it's now a case of we need to move three aeroplanes and they're fully committed. So now 100% of my fleet is committed to this task flying between Australia, uh, flying between Australia and somewhere in Pakistan. Um, it's a long trip. There's multiple stopovers. We're picking up bits and pieces through Sri Lanka and stuff as we go. And we've just got this circuit running. And then an American aeroplane fell over. So a C-17, big, brand new American aeroplane, part of the the reporting process, famous for their reliability. And then they turn to us, the hangar queens, the ones who never can fly. And they say, can you replace this aircraft? Remember, I don't have an aeroplane to replace it with theoretically so this was now i had to turn to my contractor who was doing the deeper maintenance and they had an aircraft that they kept saying was close but not really so we had to organize while i'm on a plane somewhere in sri lanka through phone hookups for half my staff to jump on a herc go up to brisbane help the contractor finish that maintenance get that aircraft test flown back down to richmond into service and in the cycle within the next day and a half. Wow. And I had to commit hoping that all that would work. Yeah. Um, I had to commit hoping that the people that I had been building up would attack this with the kind... I'm not there. I can't whip them into shape. I can't order them. I have to hope that the culture that we'd been building persisted and that people continued to be able to... um, do what I needed yeah. when I'm not there. And that's the value of culture, isn't it? That's when you're not there, how are they going to operate? That's exactly right. And I, again, it worked. Well, again, yeah. massive kudos to our contractor. They punched yeah. the airplane out and did a whole bunch of things they weren't contracted to do. Great. And yeah, we got four aircraft flying at one point. So I've got an, air, I've got a, an entire fleet of four aircraft. That's it. All flying. All flying essentially for the next 30 Four thirty-five days. Wow, that's a big flat task. out. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, until that, we're just deferring every piece of maintenance we possibly could, and then we broke. But oh, that's okay. okay, because eventually maintenance has to be done. Yeah, it does. Yeah, you got to call them in, and and that's okay. You can't will yourself into that either. <laughs> yeah. You can't will no. a crack into stopping to grow. Yeah. So that was okay. Task done. Hospital up in place. All all sorted. Um, out of that, I got promoted. Well done. Um, again, moved to Seattle, 
and became part of a project office. And frankly, in, from a leadership point of view, that was kind of a return to what I'd done before. Okay. Very staff oriented, very technical oriented, a lot of working with contractors. A lot less pressure. A lot less pressure. Yeah. Living in a nice location over in yeah. Seattle, it was lovely. Yeah. Um, so I can't really add much from that perspective. Okay. Came back and um, was in the, came back as the chief engineer of the aircraft that I had been working over in Seattle. Yeah. Um, and again, another sort of turn of the leadership wheel on another one of these interesting times where now it became leadership of a workforce, not only that didn't work for me, but weren't even in the Air Force. Yes. Um, so okay. I'm the chief engineer of um, the, the Wedgetail aircraft with around about, I think I had seven uniformed and public service staff working for me. Yep. But by extension, I contracted into an organization that employed around about 80 engineers. Okay. And they did the work, but I told them what to do. Yeah. But I don't have command over them. I don't set their processes. I've got to, got to use contractual levers I've got. But frankly, yeah. anyone who's ever tried to get someone to do something by pointing at a contract has probably worked out it doesn't work or, or we'll soon work out it doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> especially if you're like trying to talk to your yeah. builder or something like yeah. that um what works is actually all of the the soft leadership skills yeah. convincing them that we're on the journey together convincing them building a culture across both your organization and theirs that we all share in yeah um sometimes that involves nice things, doing yeah. leadership exercises and going on barbecues together and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes it means being a little bit manipulative. Um, for example, the company that we were working with um, had a big American offshore um, organization and very American, very warfighter based. We love to support the warfighter, all that. Everything yeah. you've ever heard about that kind of jingoistic American yeah. stuff, absolutely true. Yep. So something you learnt is if you're ever having a meeting with the Americans, make sure you're wearing your DPCUs, yep. your combat uniform. Because yep. they, they love it. Remind them that you're the warfighter. In, their, in the conversations, remind them what they're doing to help the warfighter. And they love it. They fall into yep. line. That's a culture that they respond to. Yeah. If you turned up in their uniform of a business suit, well, now that culture just breaks down immediately. Yes. Now you're yes. just the one who wants them to do something they're not contracted for. Yeah. Um, so you just pick, how can I influence this behavior? What's gonna work? What's not gonna work? Yeah. Um, who, it, all of those more influence and leadership skills, yeah. who within this organization can I use? Who can't I use? Who, yeah. who will I recruit as an ally? Who do I need to, um, sort of find a way to deal with, mm. uh, how am I gonna get around these problems? And, and you just work through that. Yeah. And I mean, you could talk for hours on oh, just how you do yeah. that. Influence and leadership really go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah. And it's interesting that a key theme that seems to be coming through your, the conversation here is that it's about relationships. And it's interesting when, when I talk to people about military and leadership, they all have that picture of, you know, the boot camp movies that you see of American Army and American Marines, and but the reality is quite different. Yes, like that that type of leadership does work when you're on a battlefield and you need to take a hill. Yeah, 
but that's a small part of what the military do. Like you said, you know, we do humanitarian aid and you go off and drop things overseas, you do a lot of movement around the country and it doesn't come down to this whole yelling and screaming. A lot of it is actually about developing relationships where there's trust and you get to know the people and what's important to them, like turning up in a military uniform, for example, because that's something that they can relate to. They have a passion for and will go extra. Mm. It actually brings out the best in them because of something that they believe in. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And in fact, I have been a firm believer that the whole yelling and screaming thing... Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> either it doesn't work at all or it, it, it has a very limited number of uses. Yeah. There's a very... It's like you've probably only got two or three times to do this to someone yeah. ever. And once you've used up those three, that's it, it's gone. <laughs> There's no point anymore unless you've actually sent them to jail. They've realised that you're not actually going to send them to jail. Um, It's funny, talking about culture and and, and what it means, I'll take a slight diversion of my mind for a sec. I'll never forget a a single quote I heard. Talking about, actually, there was a, a guy interviewed just before... This is from the US Civil War, and it's just before Pickett's Charge, the final big charge of the Battle of Gettysburg, and this entire division is about to be destroyed. They don't. And these are experienced soldiers. They actually know that what they're about to do is going to probably get most of them killed. Yeah. Um, and in an, in an interview after, after the, the charge, one of the prisoners was asked, why did you do it? You've been doing this you're a professional soldier. You've been at all these other battles. You knew what the outcome was going to be. What? How did you guys walk across that field and just get mown down? And the guy said, I wasn't brave enough not to go. <laughs> well, yeah. And what that meant was, well, I think what he was saying is, the culture that they had built in, in this case, the Confederate Army, was so great yeah. that the idea of not going the yeah. idea of not doing what you needed to do for your organisation, even to the point of your own death, was actually more frightening than yeah. dying. Yep. Now, I would never for an instant say that that's what I would have said. <laughs> I don't want someone to, to be part of my organisation that deeply. Yeah. But from that you can draw... I think there's probably far more people who have walked across the field of fire because yeah. they're terrified of not of letting their friends down yeah. than they ever have of they're terrified of being yelled at or yeah. being sent to jail or even yeah. being you know court-martialed. Yeah. So that idea of building a culture, of building an, a sense that this is who we are, this is what we do, yeah. this is how we behave, is really the key to getting the leadership you yeah. want. Um, and so, yeah, that worked for me when I was the chief engineer. Um, after that, I got another post. I needed to come down to Melbourne. I got another posting. Yeah. I had a very straightforward technical role, nothing particularly yeah. exciting, and which is actually an interesting little point because at this point, I sat back and looked at my career and said, I've worked in a flying squadron. I've travelled all, all over the world. I've been a senior engineering officer. I've been the chief engineer of a weapon system. Um, I've managed hundreds of men. I've I've done it all. You've done it all. There's nothing else in the Air Force I want. Um, the the come to Jesus moment was I was sitting down with my boss and he said, you know, it's posting time coming. There's half a chance you're in the pool for promotion. What would you like? And I couldn't think of a single job I wanted. 
Wow. And I didn't want to be that guy that just sort of sees out his time. Yeah, no. And so that was like a Thursday. Um, <laughs> Friday morning, I did, I jumped on Seek and yep. had a bit of a look around. I saw a job that looked kind of interesting. Rang the guy and said, look, I've never worked in this industry before, but this is my background. Is it worth applying? He said, yeah, that'd be great, but you know, applications close in an hour or two. And I said, okay, no problems. So I quickly ran home, typed up my application, submitted it. Um, then uh, probably a week later, I had the interview. I was shortlisted, had another interview. A week after that, they offered me a position. And I retired, resigned well. from the Air Force. Um, left the Air Force and joined to become um, a senior, in, a senior manager in um, the Victorian Public Service managing rail safety, which is a completely different field. It's a completely different industry. Yep. Um, you know, people could make the relationship between transport-ish, like one flies things around, one trains things around, but they are significantly different. Yeah. A, and one's a military culture, one's a public service culture. Um, employees, yeah, explain. Share with us the, the challenges that you had, because all of it's a mindset shift, isn't it? So it, yeah. coming from an organization that you've been in for 30 year, odd years, or close to 30 years at that stage, uh, and literally growing up in that organization, then going into a new new culture completely. Yeah, so what it was interesting, I knew I had challenges, but then at the same time, I looked back at my career and said, oh, look, over my 30 something years, I've had seven or eight jobs, I've routinely yeah. had jobs that frankly I had no previous experience for, but I'm smart and I'm able to deal with things. Um, I dealt with a number of, in fact, during the selection process that asked me, did you feel comfortable working with public servants? Probably from the time I was a squadron leader onwards, I was routinely working with public servants and had them working for me. So I had no problems. I didn't yep. see that this would be an issue. Um, through a lot of my time, I'd, spelt, I'd worked with contractors that I, that um, I regulated or had a contract with. So again, I didn't see that there would be any great concerns there. Yeah. One thing led to another, and I actually started the job just before Christmas, just to do with yeah. when work would happen. So I've come into the office and there's almost no one there because most people have gone away on Christmas leave. And the manager who'd hired me was there, so that was good. So I spent a lot of time talking to him and we had a really good relationship and that was going well. And then one of the last things that we did was we went to um, an audit out brief. I hadn't been involved in the audit at all, but it was a good opportunity for me to sort of meet the contractors that we're dealing with, start to get a sense of how this worked. So we had a bit of a chat and I saw that and I felt very familiar. It was the yeah. same as it could have been dealing with an aviation guy. Yeah. And um, I'm talking to my, my manager as I'm coming back and we're chatting and he said, yeah, look, the questions you're asking and the things you're making, you could have been working in this industry for 20 years. Yeah. So I, I, I went on Christmas holidays feeling I've so done the right thing. I come back, the manager who hired me has been fired and... Um, <laughs> That's not a good sign, is it? That's not a good sign. And I've got oh, a no. whole new manager who didn't even know that he had a deputy. Um, and so he didn't really know what to do with me. 
Okay. Um, and then, so I didn't have a really clear idea of what he wanted, but that's okay. I'm kind of, I've dealt with uncertainty before, so I thought I could find a space. But then the rest of the workforce started to come back to work and I started to try and integrate myself into that. And now with the benefit of hindsight, I can see all the mistakes I made. And with yeah. the benefit of hindsight, I can see how I could have how I could have avoided some of these pitfalls. Now, being really honest with myself, whilst I could have, I'm not sure if I would have. Yeah. I'm not sure if I actually would have wanted to do the things I would have been required to do. Probably the best thing I could have done was very quickly realised I was probably not in a place I wanted to be and simply yeah. left sooner. Okay. But what I was finding is I now arrived in a workforce which was very public service oriented in that worst possible way. Yep. They were, you know, there was a lot of people who were, they were good at what they did, but they knew what they needed to do and they just wanted to be able to do what they did at in their way. Yep. And it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't entirely what the new managers wanted and they wanted a lot of change. And for the first time ever, every tool I had ever used to try and get people on side either didn't work or actively failed. Um, like things where I walk in and say, okay, let's try and do this. Let's see if we can stretch our boundaries. Let's see if we can do this. Next thing I know, I'm being called in and told I'm tasking people beyond what they're entitled to do. I'm tasking, sorry, what they're required to do. I'm demanding of them that they could do things, that they should be able to do things um, that they're not employed to do. Um, my expectations are unrealistic and I'm making people feel uncomfortable in the workforce. Um, so I have another try and we try and do something else and then I get that call, terribly sorry, you know, that I often use humour and jokes and stories. People are offended by the stories. People are offended by the jokes. People are, I'm going, okay, well, I won't do that. You're not communicating with people enough. You're not talking. I just could not find a way yeah. to get through. Um, I think what it came down to is, funnily enough, in that instance, what was probably needed was a manager that I, and a leader that I was not. Yeah, I had never been the shouty, yelly, hold yeah. people to account, string you up by your toenails if you're not doing it. And for the first time in my 30 years, Funnily enough, outside of the military, where everyone thinks that that's required, that's what was required. Yeah, and that, that is actually quite ironic. <laughs> and it became really interesting. I was clearly, it never occurred to me as we went through the recruitment process that the reason that they, they were so keen on getting a stereotypical, a, a military person is because they thought the stereotypical military person was exactly the person they needed. Yeah. The stereotypical military person was the exact person they needed, but not me. But there's very, very few of them. There aren't many of them. No. Um, certainly not coming up through the highly technical, collaborative, no. cooperative yeah. environments that I was used to. And yeah, I really struggled. I could not cut through. I Everything I tried, recruit an ally, recruit your first follower, all of those things just fell flat. Um, okay. And you know, I, I think more than anything, I started learning lessons about 
I did begin to realise what I had to do to lead that organisation. Yeah. And I realised I didn't want to do that. Okay. I, that, that is not me. Um, I started to try yeah. and force myself to be that person, to be the guy that the organisation, frankly, probably needed me to be. And I stopped sleeping. I started gaining a yeah. bunch of weight again. I just, I felt sick all the time. I was trying so hard to be someone I couldn't be that I was killing myself. Yeah. And so then it became a case of saying, well, sometimes, you know, the most important thing is to know when to say no. Yep. And that was when I realised, nah, th- trying to succeed at something that even deep down I'm not even sure if I wanted to succeed at, but just because I didn't want to fail <laughs> was wrong. Yeah. It was not going to work. Yeah. So That's some, an interesting element of leadership, though, is knowing what type of leader you are and where your skill sets best lie. Because I think there's this misconception now in doesn't matter whether it's the military or industry or in the civilian world that a lot of people think that if you're the leader you should be the leader across every aspect and I don't think that's a fair call and I think a great example of that was even with Christine Nixon as the police commissioner of Victoria mm. when Black Saturday came in so before Black Saturday which is for those people listening in from overseas was a huge fire through Victoria through the, the um, bushlands of Australia or, or Victoria in particular and over 170 people died. So we lost a lot of lives, a lot of homes were lost, but particularly significant loss of life. And as the police commissioner, she was really in charge of that emergency response. But prior to that day, she was heralded as a great leader. She was mm. a very collaborative leader. She was a very inclusive leader, fantastic at what she did. But on one particular day, she got criticized so heavily, it did force her, I think, really cost her her role and she she resigned not too long after that and not and not not in bad circumstances either by the way but she got heavily criticized for that particular day so yeah. one day out of many many decades of success as a, of a leader and <laughs> yeah and they they still hold her to account for that one day yeah and still not pro- not quite on one day but there's a similar yeah. example well, where no no yeah a, a similar case um an army officer I know of whose career had gone quite well. He'd made it yeah. to star rank, but he'd effectively stopped um, and was probably in the final phases of his career. A job came up. He nailed it, yep. got it absolutely right. Suddenly this career that was kind of winding down gets strapped to the Saturn V rocket and yes. he goes all the way to the top. Yeah. Um, because a career which had kind of, a management style which had only got him so far but didn't really suit the, the normal circumstances, yeah. suddenly found new circumstances yep. and just rocketed away. Yeah. So you're right, There's sometimes you'll have a, a leadership style that works brilliantly 95% of the time. None of that is any help to you if you're in the 5%. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I found myself. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, I wound it up. Uh, I left. Now I'm back in defence. You're back. No one is more surprised than me. It was <laughs> you a got little, that call, didn't you? I got that call. It was a little bit embarrassing uh, when you come back to the same section that like two years ago you'd had your farewells from. Yeah. <laughs> but 
Um, and it, it did make me do some hard thinking. Remember, I got out thinking I didn't want to be that guy that just serves time yeah. anymore. But in the two years I've been out, a um, bunch of other things happen. You know, yeah. kids marry, kids get pregnant. You, I'm on the border of becoming a grandparent now. You, Congratulations. Thank you. You get that little notice in the mail that said, you get two interesting things that happen when you turn about 50. Um, one is you get, um, uh, you start to get told that you can pick your super up short week. And so that reminds you that you, maybe you've got a retirement coming. And you also get this little, for those of you overseas, you might not know this, but in your mail when you turn 50, you get this little box in the mail <laughs> that asks you to put some fecal matter in so they can test whether you've got bowel cancer or not. Yeah. Which kind of reminds you that you're on the path to dying. Uh, and look, we all do at some stage, but you don't need reminders in the mail. I don't do need a reminder from the government in the mail that uh, my poo could kill me. Yeah. Um, so that forced me to think maybe just continuing to work, continuing to succeed, continuing to get promoted is not necessarily success. Yeah. Um, and that, redefining success is important, yeah. isn't it? Um, the organisation, the Air Force that I left had undergone in that two years I was away significant change. Yep. Change I was aware of and was actually quite excited to be part of. Yep. And so I came back redefining for myself what did I want to achieve. I no longer, I was happy to be in the Air Force not promoting, not getting promoted, not moving yep. up, but instead in this area that I was very interested in being of key influence. So not yeah. perhaps moving up, but at least shaping the Air Force the way I'd like it to be. Yeah. Um, I think I'm doing that, so I'm happy. I would, I would say you are. I'll, I'll, I'll take that as, I'll take that, because you, yeah. you do when you can. Absolutely. So what, what has changed for you in that space, like for your leadership? So noting that you went into a space where you found that you, it wasn't your leadership style, mm -hmm. and you've come back into an organization which has significantly changed. Yeah, I think probably the number one thing is I've become more deliberate in my leadership style. I, I really looking back, even though I can talk, in, in, and it, it becomes a bit deceptive when you're talking about the past yeah. from now, everything starts to become very calculated and you could, it, it sounds as though you had a plan. Yeah. In retrospect, being truly honest, I had some good training, I had some good experience, I had some good mentors. And I probably just had some good instincts. Yeah. So I could just shape things kind of as they went without, I don't think I ever would have sat down and said, okay, make a list of the people that I've got, make a list of what they're good at, what they're bad at, how would you get through this? Frankly, that was a process that was quite literally, I'll be honest, forced on me by my manager when I was in rails, when okay. she could sense I was struggling. She was concerned about the way things were going and she told me to go do this. Um, it was something I'd never done consciously before. Um, so even in the midst of what was for me a fairly unpleasant time, you know, I've got to look back and say, just getting through, just trying yeah. to do this, didn't change who I was as a leader necessarily, but what it did is it made me more deliberate about the leader yeah. that I was. So when I came into this new position, I, was, I didn't sit down to the extent that I had to in a previous role and write people literally on a piece of paper, people's strengths, people's weaknesses, how I intend to manage through this. Yeah. But I was much more deliberate when I look at, looked at this new staff and said, okay, 
who's got what strengths, who's got what weaknesses, and quite deliberately started putting people into the places. Um, I got a sort of an, an early sort of tick of approval because I'd been in this the section I've got now for oh, probably about a week. Yeah, I'd been watching it for a while because I'd been brought in and was sitting outside yeah. it, then got appointed, started taking it, sat down, thought thought about this for about a week, thought we're going to ne- need to do a restructure. So I did the restructure and I sort of said, this is where I think I'm going to put people. And I called in the three, my three execs who worked directly to me and, and said, look, you knew I was thinking about doing this. I've had a first cut, but you guys have been working at it for a while. You guys know these people better than I do. Yep. I've only known them for a little while. What do you think? Cut away. And they all actually, the three of them looked at it and went, oh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> In yeah. fact, and one of them came back and said, how on earth did you do that? Yeah. And, you know, you've, you, you nailed it. You just moved 22 people into exactly the right spots after having barely known them. Um, but God forbid, you know, that two years that I had that I really didn't enjoy yeah. probably made me the person that could do that. Yeah. Because it made me really conscious and careful, um, not just rely on instinct, but deliberate yeah. your way through things. And so that we always find our growth in those uncomfortable moments, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 I guess not necessarily our failures, but sometimes it is our failures, but it's also finding our limits. Yeah. And I'm like, I always say it's good to test where those limits are. Yeah. I don't, I, like I said, I, I don't, I didn't enjoy the time. I'd no. enjoyed the first couple of months. Um, then I had no K time and then I really struggled for the last year. But I don't, do I, do I regret it? Sort of, kind of. But then on the other hand, I've, I've got to take from it what I got from yeah, it. Um, I, I learned more about myself. I learned more about being a leader. I learned a lot of interesting tech stuff too, which, yeah. you know, about safety regulation and things, which I, I would never have got if I'd stayed within the little hot yeah. house. So you take from it what you can. And at the end of the day, I'm better for the time. So how bad Fantastic. can it be? Yeah, exactly. I know we need to land this plane, uh, Pete. So I just want to take a quick tangent, which is around your fitness regime. Mate. Uh, like, like I know for many years you've been doing this bizarre thing of doing Ironmans yep. and testing yourself around the world now, doing Ironmans around the world. Where do you see that linkage between doing this, you know, the ultra distance and ultra fitness work and leadership? Oh, God, there's a good question. Um, well, one is sitting on your bike for six hours and trying to think, trying to stop thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, this hurts. When's it going to stop? Um, filling your mind with the sorts of things that you might be thinking about at work is always yep. a good distraction. But probably more than anything, um, what it comes down to is there are some simple things time management and that sort of thing you've got to know how to get from point A to point B and at the same time commute and at the same time get your job done and at the same time be home in time to take the kids somewhere or do something and so there's that standard kind of whenever you're that old saying you know if you want something done ask a busy person so there's that that kind of just general planning stuff but probably at a deeper level um, one of the things that I found is if you go particularly for someone as a senior officer in the Air Force uh, or in, in any kind of organisation, you get really used to being the one that everyone defers to. You get really yeah. used to being the one that you know, tells directions. Yes, I work for someone, okay? 
I have a boss and I see them for two or three minutes a day. Yep. Um, maybe less. I spend the rest of my time with people who call me sir, yep. who salute, who you know approach me respectfully, defer yep. to me and think of me as a guru. Yep. Going out training with a bunch of people where you're just some old 50 year old who is way slower, who doesn't know anything, is really quite humbling and is actually quite a nice place to be. And it really does, it reminds you, you're not the center of the universe. You've got a lot more things to work on. You've got a lot of other things that you can improve on. Um, And it it also says to you, and there's a whole bunch of things which are important other than both you and your job. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things for me that, um, for me it's triathlon, but it could be for other people. One of the traps with any job is the job becomes your life and everything yeah. becomes that job. And, and identity and everything gets And it becomes your identity. And what happens if you lose it? Yeah. yeah, and that different people can respond different ways. Um, what I found, I, I didn't become pathological about my job or anything. That wasn't a problem in the past, but I would have, looking back at who I was before I took up triathlon, I would say I was probably a bit narrow, a bit okay. um, less comfortable with, with uncertainty. Um, I was probably a little bit one-dimensional perhaps okay breaking out and saying here is this whole other realm which for me was um, triathlon but which could have been a different activity for someone else which is not just something you do on the edges but is actually sort of forms a new part of your identity i think that's the key if you if you're someone who likes taking photos and you take a couple photos on weekends that's not going to change anything yeah but probably the big thing about so doing, in my case, Ironman triathlons, you're committing yourself to 25 hours a week. Easy. That's yep. becoming, that's not just something you do, that's becoming who you are. Yeah. And that's when you start to grow as both a person and probably as a leader, when not just what you do gets yep. bigger, because that doesn't really make much difference, when who you are yep. becomes something. Yeah. When you become the guy who can jump on a bike and ride it for six hours because that's what just needs to be done. Yeah. When you become the guy who can, you know, go for a swim in the in, you know, the freezing cold, you know, bay at in June, which for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere is cold. <laughs> that, that's that's our winter then um, in Australia. When you and become the guy that does the four K swim in the cold, in the ocean, in winter, then who you are becomes different. Yeah. How I can't comment on the thing. It comes down to is you, you finding new limits. You're also finding, I think there's, you, you're adjusting yourself to the point of exhaustion and you go, well, if, if I can ride a bike for six hours, this little problem I now have at work is no, well, this problem I have at work is no longer a big problem. It's a little problem because I've been nearly dead <laughs> and I know that this is not going to kill me. Yeah. You know? I probably, probably didn't think about quite so, so literally, but on a more general case, that is true. Yeah. The your, the problems that you have, this idea that you just can't get this report finished, or you yeah. just can't, your boss just will not sign this for some reason, or you just can't 
can't get this meeting prepared. Yeah, even funnily enough, even when you say it like yeah. that, none of those sounds particularly <laughs> big, do they? When you're in it, yeah. it feels like this massive problem. But when you just have to generalize it for something like a podcast, and go, I couldn't get a report through. You guys are probably going, what is he talking about? But yeah. you know, when you're in it, it's huge. And for some people, it's massive. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you're right, when it's a case of saying, quite frankly, when it's cold and windy and wet outside, by two, three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm far more worried about the ride home yeah. than I am about any little work problem. Yeah. Um, I'm way less stressed about, um, I have to get up at seven some morning, or six some mornings to get to a meeting because most other mornings I'm getting up at 4.30 to go yeah. for a swim. Um, yeah, all of these big issues that once would have been drowning you out just sort of fade and also quite personally for me it helped that transition from the point of my leadership is to succeed and help others but also get myself promoted let's be honest there's, yeah. a, there's a degree of self-interest in you all of succeed this and, and see wanna, how you can go. i want to succeed and for most people that are in a career and where that career has some sort of progression, that success means progressing through the through yeah. the career, getting promoted, getting new jobs. Um, one of the things you find is that when who you are expands, in my case, I am now Pete McCall, engineer, father, parent, Ironman triathlete, that expanded, then suddenly maybe my definition of success isn't getting that next promotion. Maybe it's okay, I'm just going to do this job well, be influential, but I'm going to get my success by going sub 12 hours. I'm going to get my success by actually running the whole marathon. I'm yeah. going to get my success by not throwing up. <laughs> yeah. you just know, the simple things just in Just the little things in life. <laughs> yeah. um, and so yeah. what it can do is it can enable you to perhaps stay in an area that you're, you enjoy that you don't want to stagnate in, and but you can stay there and keep working and keep leading, so not drop back and become that guy that's just sort yeah. of hovering and waiting to death to come, for death to come, or you know retirement. Um, you can stay there. You can stay engaged. You can keep leading actively, knowing that all the pressure, all the desire to succeed, all the desire to push forward is actually somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I want to keep improving, I want to keep going longer, I want to keep going faster, I want to keep going to new and interesting places in triathlon. In work, I will lead, I will do what I have to do, I will do what I want to do, what I need to do, um, without feeling that I have to get promoted, I have to, I have to move forward there. That's a nice perspective. Yeah, and I think sometimes, again, there's that, it's an interest. I'm now interested. There's a new balance for me, which is how do you stay interested and engaged and be effective leader? Because I don't think you can be an effective leader if you're on autopilot. You have to be engaged yeah, totally and interested and wanting to wanting to drive the organisation without necessarily wanting to drive yourself. Yeah. And I think for me, that's what triathlon has done. It's given me a place where I can continue to try and push and exceed and grow and do all these things that isn't work. Yeah. And at work, yeah, nice. I can 
I can be engaged, I can be enthused, but I don't have to have that. If I'm not getting promoted, I'm not going to be engaged, no. which is what happens to an awful lot of people. Yeah. So I think nice. for me, that's probably what triathlon's done more than anything else. Nice. I know we need to um, park this bird in the hangar, mate. So yeah. I know you need to go because you need to ride home. So um, thank you very much for... Look, you can it. Honestly, that was fantastic. And I know the listeners will get a lot out of that if they really take the time to listen to what you've shared and also the lessons learnt along the way. And it's interesting that you know the, the biggest areas of growth are the, the times that are the toughest. And mm. you know, as a leader, I think that's one of the biggest things that people can learn because we quite often try to avoid those tough experiences because it's not comfortable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so that was a great, great insight. Thank you very much. No problem. Welcome. Well, we did it. What did you think of that one? What a great story of how a young man has come into a leadership position, almost thrown into that leadership position, and how he's evolved his leadership over a 30-plus year career and how he's had to shape, adapt, and mould to the environment that he's been in. But that's what leadership is about. There's never a one way is the best way of leadership. Hey, if you've liked that, please hit the like button. I'd really love it if you could share it with your friends and even recommend your friends to tune in and subscribe to the channel. If you're a first-time listener, I hope you really enjoyed that your first episode with us. Go back, please, and have a listen to all the other ones. There's some great insights in our previous episodes. If you're a return listener, thank you so much for coming back. That means so much to me, and I do track the stats. And having said that, I'd like to do a quick shout-out to a good mate of mine, Mac, who I went to school with. Mac, I know you tuned in last week to listen in, so I hope you're back again this week, mate, and I hope you've enjoyed this one as much as last week's. Thanks again. Until next week, I'll see you then.